Luke chapter 3, verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they'd prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Amen. Well, let me pray before we spend some time thinking about this passage together. Let me pray. The psalmist writes, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in a world that is broken and that's so often very confusing, your word brings clarity, speaks of our deepest needs, and shows us how in your grace you meet those needs. Father, we ask that as we study your word together this evening, you would bring real certainty to each one of us. Certainty that the resurrection really happened. And certainty that it had to happen. And we ask that in having that certainty, each one of us would trust you either for the very first time or if we have already trusted you, that we would do so with even greater assurance. We ask these things for our joy and for your glory. Amen. Well, this evening we're spending our evening thinking about the Easter story, the death and resurrection of Jesus. But before we spend some time thinking about the content of the Easter narrative itself, I think it's worth taking a moment or two to make sure that we're all clear as to what we're actually thinking about 
when we think about the resurrection. Because not everyone approaches the resurrection of Jesus in the same way. What do I mean by that? Well, in uh, 2017, uh, a number of big British media broadcasters commissioned a large-scale survey about religious attitudes. And they found that of those who would identify themselves as active Christians in the UK, that just under a half said that they either aren't sure or that they don't believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just under half, I think it's about 45%. And a few years before that, another survey, again carried out by uh, fairly large British media broadcasters, found that in one of the biggest Protestant church denominations in the world, around one-third of clergy, that's of those leading the churches, do not believe that the resurrection is a real historical event. Striking, isn't it? But interestingly, the majority of those who were asked They said they weren't sure about the resurrection, but rather than just binning the whole thing, abandoning the Christian faith, they said that they read the the resurrection as a metaphor, as a legend or a myth. I recently read, one minister put it this way, the meaning of the resurrection is that we can face the dawn of each new day with courage. Now, it sounds quite profound, doesn't it? And perhaps that reflects your view on the resurrection too. Maybe you feel that you can get on board with some of the teachings of Jesus Christ, loving your neighbor or turning the other cheek. But the idea of someone being physically resurrected from the dead, well, that doesn't fit very neatly with a rational Western worldview, does it? So the only way to square that circle, to hang on to the teachings of Jesus is to treat the resurrection as a metaphor, as a fable. And before we look at the substance of what the resurrection is actually about, I think it's worth taking a moment to think about how the authors of the resurrection accounts intended their accounts to be read. So, for example, did Luke, one of the gospel writers, the one we've just read of this evening, did Luke write his account as a myth or as a legend? Or is it intended to be a straightforward historical account of what actually happened? It's an important question. And I think as you read Luke's account, you have to acknowledge that at the very least, Luke means it to be read as a factual account, as a historical eyewitness account. Let me give you one example. Just briefly, Luke at chapter 24, verse 1. If you have that open in front of you, it's page 884. Luke identifies a man called Joseph who Luke carries on to explain is from the Jewish town of Arimathea. Tiny, tiny little incidental comment. Look on to verse 10. Luke identifies women who are at the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James. Now those all seem like incidental details, don't they? Just this this sort of throwaway comments in, in Luke's account. But just think for a moment. If this is a fable, a metaphor, a myth, why does Luke bother including verses 1 and 10? Why does he bother? They don't take his story any further, do they? The story isn't made any more profound or inspirational or powerful by us knowing the names of Mary and uh, Mary, the mother of James and Joanna, or, or knowing that Joseph is from Arimathea. That doesn't make it any more profound. 
The only reason you would include those details is if you were actually recording something that happened. They're so incidental. You would only mention them if these were really the people who were there. Now, why have I begun this talk with that little detail, that little incidental detail? Well, because I think it's really worth being clear about what we're dealing with when we read Luke's gospel as a whole, when we think about his account of the resurrection. At the very least, we have to acknowledge that Luke does not want us to approach his account as a myth or a legend or a metaphor. He writes it as an eyewitness account. That's how Luke wants us to approach it. And so that's how we're going to approach it this evening. And as we do so, there are three particular aspects of the resurrection that I think Luke wants us to be certain about. That's Luke's purpose statement for his whole gospel account. He wants to bring certainty to his readers. There is a sermon outline on the back of the service sheet that you hopefully got when you came in. You might find it helpful to have those uh, points open in front of you as we go along. Firstly, be certain that the resurrection of Jesus really happened. Now, the first detail Luke wants us to pick up, up on is quite a simple one, I think. On Good Friday, Jesus was definitely dead. See, our thoughts at an Easter weekend tend to move straight from a Good Friday service to a resurrection Easter Sunday service. But in Luke's account, after Jesus breathes his last in verse 46, Luke doesn't skip on. He lingers. At the end of chapter 23, we meet a man, Joseph of Arimathea, who asks Pilate for Jesus' body. Pilate gives it to him. Now, Joseph has to hurry to get the body ready for burial before the Jewish day of rest begins. So he takes the body, he wraps it in a shroud, and lays it in a tomb. But despite the hurry, and despite the personal cost to himself, think on the reputational damage of being associated with a crucified criminal. Despite both of those things, Joseph goes out of his way to look after the body of Jesus. And Joseph isn't the only one. In verse 56 of chapter 23, some of Jesus' followers are preparing spices and ointments there to be used to stop the decaying body from smelling. Again, an incidental comment, but it marks what's going on. It's a scene of mourning, isn't it? Look down to verse 55. The woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed. They saw the tomb and saw how Jesus' body was laid. So what's the point of all of this at the end of chapter 23? Why not just skip on to Resurrection Sunday? Well, I think the point that Luke is making is that Jesus is dead. He's buried. And his closest followers, who had more reason than anyone to wish that he was still alive, well, they're convinced that he's dead. They're in mourning. On Good Friday, the tomb is occupied. But as well as being really clear that the tomb's occupied on Good Friday, Luke's also at pains to show that by Sunday morning, the tomb's empty. Look on to chapter 24, verse 1. The women go back to the tomb to put those spices that they prepared on Jesus' body. 
And by verse 2, the women found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. The tomb is empty. Now, of course, they might have made a mistake. They're grieving, perhaps feeling a little bit hysterical. Maybe they missed the body in a moment of panic. Well, to snuff that idea out, Luke loops back round. And at the end of this little section, verse 12, we see Peter not dismissing their story when he hears it like the other disciples do. They dismiss it as an idle tale, or the word, really the translation of Luke's word is nonsense. They dismiss it. But he doesn't do that. And yet he doesn't just take it at face value, does he? He runs to the tomb to see what's happened for himself. And verse 12, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. This might seem like a very, very simple point, but Luke is just making it ultra clear that on Good Friday, Jesus was physically dead and buried. And on Easter Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. And the question that leaves for each one of us is, do you really believe that? We've already thought this evening on the fact that many people dismiss the resurrection as a story or as a metaphor. And it's true to say that great stories can be really powerful, can't they? They, they, can, they, they don't just entertain us, they can move us, they can inspire us. But the truth is, if a story is just a story and nothing more, then I can choose to pay attention to it. I can choose to be moved by it and inspired by it. But I can also choose to just ignore it, can't I? And that same principle applies to the resurrection. See, if the resurrection is a metaphor, as will have been proclaimed in many churches across this country this morning, then I might find it inspirational, might find it moving, but I don't have to do anything with it, do I? But if the resurrection is historical fact, as Luke intends us to see it, if Jesus of Nazareth physically died on Good Friday and was physically raised from the dead by Easter Sunday, then that is not something we can take or leave. You and I have to sit up and pay attention. The bottom line is that everyone has to do something with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And my question for each one of us this evening is, what will you do with it? What will you do with the resurrection of Jesus? Will you dismiss it as an idle tale like the rest of the disciples did on first hearing it? It's nonsense. Or will you believe it as Luke thinks we should, as he gives us credible evidence of? On Good Friday, the tomb was occupied, but by Easter Sunday, the tomb is empty. Luke wants us to be certain of that. The resurrection really happened. That's our first point for this evening. But as we move through chapter 24, the angels who appeared at the tomb and the risen Jesus himself, they raised the stakes on the resurrection. I wonder if you noticed that as we read a few minutes ago. It's their contention, not only that the resurrection happened as historical fact, 
but that the resurrection had to happen. Think about that under our second heading this evening. Be certain that the cross and resurrection had to happen. After arriving at the tomb on the Sunday morning, the women find the stone rolled away. They find the body gone, grave clothes folded neatly, and they're perplexed, completely thrown by what they've seen. When two men, who are later identified as angels, stand before them. And just notice, look down to verse 6 at what the angels say to the women. Remember how Jesus told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. They're not just saying that the cross and resurrection did happen. They say that it had to happen. Now, in case you think that one little word isn't worth making a big deal about, the angels aren't the only ones who say that in Luke's account. Just look on to verse 26. In, in Luke 20, chapter 24, we get three snapshots. There's Easter Sunday morning, Easter Sunday afternoon, and Easter Sunday evening. And in this middle snapshot, in Easter Sunday afternoon, Jesus himself is speaking to two of his own followers whilst they're traveling. And in verse 26, he says this. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. We've had must, now we have necessity. The cross and resurrection had to happen. In case you still aren't convinced or we've missed the point, still look on to the third snapshot from verse 36 and following. Again, Jesus has appeared in front of other disciples on Easter Sunday evening. And in verse 44, he says this, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. See what Luke's doing. In each of these snapshots, either the angels or Jesus himself are clear, not just that Jesus died and was raised, but that Jesus had to die and that he had to be raised. All of which begs the question, why? Well, there are lots of reasons, I think, lots of reasons that you could trace a line through the Old and New Testament for reasons. But I think there are two main ones in Luke's mind. Firstly, just look at what Jesus said in verse 44. This is the Sunday evening. He says, Jesus had to die and be resurrected in order to fulfill, to complete, to accomplish everything that had been promised in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, the Old Testament. And we thought about that together this morning, didn't we? All of the Old Testament scriptures, including a book like Daniel, were fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But that fulfillment wasn't just so that the Bible would hang together as a coherent unit or for the sake of literary neatness. It was because all of the Old Testament pointed towards a great, big problem for humanity and to our need for a great, big solution. We got a flavor of that problem and solution in Luke's own account just before Jesus himself was crucified in chapter 22. We thought about it a couple of Sunday mornings ago in the Last Supper. The picture Jesus used at the Last Supper was the Passover. 
The Passover is when the Jewish people remember that God promised to kill every firstborn son in all of Egypt to judge Pharaoh and to persuade him to let his people go from slavery. Only those whose houses had been painted with the blood of a lamb would be rescued or passed over by God's right judgment. And the big picture, the big story of the whole Bible, of the the law, the prophets, the Psalms, is that that is how every one of us stand before God, rightly condemned. The story of humanity since Adam and Eve is that every one of us ignore God and make ourselves kings and queens of our own lives. And that God should rightly judge us for our rejection of him. And yet, all the way through the Old Testament, God promised that he would send a substitute, a Passover lamb, who would bear that judgment in our place. In order that God's judgment could pass over his people, that's the picture, Jesus was that promised substitute, that Passover lamb. He died to rescue a people for himself. Now, how can you be sure that worked? How can you be sure that Jesus really did rescue you, Christian, by his death on the cross? Well, because he rose again. The resurrection is the guarantee, historical, objective proof that Jesus' substitution worked. If you're a Christian, you can be certain that at the cross, sin was dealt with. Judgment was paid for. A rescue was secured. Luke says the cross and resurrection didn't just happen, but that it had to happen to fulfill the Old Testament to secure a rescue, just as God had always promised he would do. That's the first reason that it had to happen. And there's a second reason that it was necessary that it had to happen. To secure the beginning of the end for death. Think for a moment of the woman we meet at the end of Luke 23. There's a realism about their behavior, isn't there? They care they take over a body. Even though some of their dreams have probably been smashed by this Messiah figure dying, They still take great care over the body. They come back first thing on a Sunday morning to take care over the body. They're in mourning. And yet notice the question that the angels ask them at the empty tomb as they stand perplexed. Verse 5. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now not only is that incredibly insensitive, which it is, or it certainly feels like it, It actually feels a bit unfair on the women, doesn't it? Because they weren't seeking the living among the dead. As far as they're concerned, Jesus is dead. They saw him. They saw his body laid in the tomb on Good Friday. But the fact that he is not dead, the fact that the tomb is empty and he is alive, is a sign that death's grip on humanity is loosened. Luke explains this more fully in the sequel to his gospel account in the book of Acts. He says there that God the Father raised Jesus up, and these are Luke's words, 
loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Loosing the pangs of death. Jesus' resurrection marks the beginning of the end for death. Death has been served its notice. That's the teaching of the whole of the Bible, the New Testament. We thought about it this morning if you were here. For someone who believes in the Lord Jesus, when we die, we will be with him in heaven. And when he returns, as he will one day, our bodies will be resurrected just as his was. And if you are a Christian this evening, I hope that's a wonderful comfort. It should be a wonderful comfort. And yet I'm conscious that for many of us it still stings. When we speak of resurrection on Resurrection Sunday, many of our minds drift to those who we've lost. So it's important you don't mishear me, because even as Christians, death still does sting. And it hurts because it's not how it's meant to be. This morning we thought about Jesus standing at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. Knowing fine well that he was going to resurrect Lazarus, that's one of the main things most of us will know about Lazarus, is that he was raised from the dead. And yet the author John records these two simple words as Jesus stands at the tomb. Jesus wept. It hurts because it is not how it's meant to be. And looking out in a room of people with real lives who've experienced grief and for many of whom, perhaps even a day like today, you feel that acutely. That's all too real. But what the resurrection does is guarantee the beginning of the end for death. Loosens its cords on humanity. And it's a guarantee that one day it will be done away with altogether. Death will be no more. Neither, says John, shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. That's what Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished for the Christian. And that's why it had to happen. One, sin and judgment paid for, been rescued. Two, bonds of death loosened. One day to be done away with altogether. Now, perhaps you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian. And uh, let me be so bold as to ask you this evening, what certainty do you have about the end of your life? It's a stark question. It's one worth asking ourselves, I think, on Resurrection Sunday. Is death just a big, bleak question mark that awaits you at the end of your three score years and ten? The physical death and literal resurrection of Jesus Christ is objective proof that he has secured a rescue and that death, well, it's been served its notice and one day it will be destroyed altogether. You can walk in real certainty when it comes to sin and to death by trusting in Jesus in his death on your behalf and raising to life again. But perhaps you, you want to believe all that. You want the hope that other Christians seem to have in the face of death and grieving. But how can you be certain? 
course, you'd believe in the resurrection if you saw physical evidence in front of you, you might think. If I saw a resurrected Jesus with my own eyes, if, if he, he, he allowed me to put my hands in the, the nail marks in his hands, if I watched him eating a fish supper in front of me, of course I believe that it's really him. But what you're asking me to rely on, well, it just isn't enough. Well, that's an objection that Luke anticipates. I'm going to think about that under our last heading for this evening. Be certain that we have all the information we need to make a decision about the resurrection. Look back again for a moment to the exchange that the women have with the angels next to the empty tomb. The women are perplexed by the empty tomb, verse 4, and the angels tell the women that Jesus isn't here because he's risen. Take a step back for a moment and remember that the evidence for the empty tomb is right there. They're literally standing right next to it. The stone's rolled away, grave clothes are folded. But the angels don't tell the women to go and have a closer look, do they? They don't point them to the physical evidence. What do they appeal to to explain what's happened? Well, look at verse 6. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise and they remembered his words. Remember what he told you. The appeal is to Jesus' words. And again, in case you think I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, the same idea in the next two snapshots. Look on to verse 25. Jesus is speaking to two of his own followers. None of, neither of them realize that it's him. And again, Remember, he is living, breathing evidence for the resurrection, and he is standing right in front of them. And so what we expect is him to show them the nail marks in his own hands and feet. But what do we get? Verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter his glory? Again, Jesus doesn't appeal to physical evidence as compelling as it is. He says that they already had enough information to go on. And lastly, look on to verse 36. Again, Jesus appearing to his disciples on Easter Sunday evening. He showed them his hands and feet. He's eating fish in front of them. When we read verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Do you see what Jesus is getting at, what the angels are getting at, what Luke's big picture is? Each time the appeal is not just to physical evidence, as stonewall as it is, the appeal is to Jesus' words, words that the disciples already had available to them, the scriptures that the disciples already had available to them. And isn't that surprising? But what does it mean for us today? Uh, well, when, when we read the New Testament, as we've already thought about this evening, we read eyewitness accounts of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So for us, the scriptures and the evidence are one and the same thing. But that actually means that Luke 24 applies more sharply to us, I think, 
than to those first disciples. Maybe you've been thinking about Christianity for a while, but you just need a bit more evidence. You've got a few more questions to have answered before you'll commit to following Jesus. And if that is you, can I just say that I'm really, really pleased that you're willing to wrestle with the evidence? Because lots of people just won't. They won't even switch their brain on for a second. But Luke's point is that what you are holding in your hand right now is enough information for you to go on. The Old Testament, written hundreds, even thousands of years before Jesus, spoke so clearly of all that he would do. The New Testament, eyewitness accounts of what he did do and accomplish. And so if you're here this evening and you aren't sure what you think, can I encourage you to go to the source material? Carefully and thoughtfully read the Bible. If you've never tried it before, you aren't sure where to start, maybe start just reading through Luke's account of the life of Jesus. Find out what it really says about him. And if you want someone to do that with, then come and grab me after this service. I'd love to read it with you. I really would love to read it with you. But maybe you're here and, and you do believe in the resurrection. You're a convinced Christian. And if that is you, then there are a couple of really strong lines of application to us too. Firstly, hopefully this is confirmation of the decision that you've already made. What you have come to believe is really true. You can be assured that staking your life, and I mean nothing short of that, staking your life on the cross and resurrection of Jesus is not a punt in the dark. It's just not. It's concrete. You can stake your life on it. That's one implication, certainty about what you already believe. And secondly, as a church family, we've just spent a whole term studying the book of Acts. And as we've done so, we've been reminded of Jesus' mission after he rose to take his good news to the ends of the earth. And that's been an exciting series, hopefully a helpful series. But my guess is that lots of us still feel woefully under-equipped to do that work. So when you think about going into work tomorrow or if you're off tomorrow on Tuesday and talking to a colleague or a friend about Jesus... Do you worry about what questions they'll ask? What if they bamboozle you with something about science and Christianity or a moral or cultural hot potato? Truth is that most of us don't feel like we have the resources, the debating skills, the apologetic arguments. So I feel half the time and, and it's what I do for a living. But if that is you... Just remember what we're dealing with in Luke 24. We're dealing with physical, walking, talking apologetics for the resurrection. The physical empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning. The risen Lord Jesus. The evidence does not get any more concrete than that. And yet each time, the angels and then Jesus himself don't just appeal to physical evidence to get people over the line. They appeal to Jesus' words to convince them. So as you consider how to take one step forward in telling people about Jesus, all I want to say to you this evening is that you can be certain that you have all the materials you will ever need in your hand right now. 
Again, do you believe that? The Lord Jesus says so. We can trust him. The resurrection of Jesus is not fake news. It's historical reality. Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. And in doing so, he defeated sin. We can be sure of it. And he loosened the grip of death on humanity, which will one day be destroyed forever. Be certain of it. Go and tell it. And rejoice in it. It's worth taking a moment to do that on Easter Sunday, isn't it? Death is dead. Love is one. Christ has conquered. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Father, we thank and praise you for the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you that it is an historical event, that it really happened. And we thank you that because it did really happen, it's not less meaningful than if it was a metaphor. It's so much more meaningful. The key event in all of human history and a life-transforming truth for each one of us in this room this evening. We ask that for those of us who don't yet believe in the resurrection, that you would convince us of the truth of it. And for those of us who do believe in it, just help us to be certain, all the more certain. And give us confidence that as we tell other people about it, we might not have all the answers to all the questions. And yet you've given us everything we need in your word. Give us confidence in that, we pray. And help us to rejoice in the wonderful, wonderful news of the resurrected Jesus Christ. We ask these things for our joy and for your glory. Amen.